Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you prepare to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Hi, Kat. So how are we all? Well, there's only two out of three here. We have Richard in one of his far-flung empire parts. Where are you today, Richard? I'm beside the Silvery Thames. Well, it's actually not. It's sort of <laughs> green and slimy. But I'm at the Cookham Sailing Club, which have very kindly sailed to the rescue and provided me with somewhere to Zoom today. Because I'm on tour at the moment, and there's these weird sort of gaps in between access to Wi-Fi and inaccessibility to Wi-Fi. But the Cookham Dean Sailing Club, um, I salute it. And where are you speaking tonight on your tour? Well, I was in High Wycombe last night and I'm in Stroud, or Strood as some people pronounce it, in Gloucestershire tonight. How are things in dear London? Pretty good. I learnt to fly in Wycombe and I was taught by a, a five-foot-tall lady called Joan who used to fly Lancaster bombers around England in the war. I didn't know you could fly. Can you actually really fly? I can fly, but I didn't actually trouble the examiners with a um, <laughs> passing an exam, but I could sort of get something up and then down. But I'm not very good at maths. I found the instrument training rather testing. So if we were in a plane crash, do we go to you? Well, that's what I thought, Kat. If we were on a plane and all of a sudden someone said the pilot's eaten the fish and is passed out, would you be able to land us safely? No. No, I wouldn't. No, <laughs> not unless we were three people in a Piper Cherokee, which seats two. <laughs> 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 then I would. Then I would, actually. And as long as it was daylight. <laughs> I've never, ever wanted to try to fly, I have to say. It is the most extraordinary thing. I couldn't believe it. The first time I had the controls handed to me by Joan Hughes, I thought she's insane. I mean, you know, hopefully she had an override. But the idea that I was 19 or something, that I was going to be able to <laughs> land this thing, it's really scary. You're literally up there on your own, obviously, you know. So is it like in a car where the instructor has a second set of pedals on a steering wheel? You know, if you mess up, mm. I think happens? if you mess up, you just relinquish all control and they have a second set of controls. I'm not sure they can override what you're doing. But I think you'd have to just stop and let them do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, hope for the best. Yeah. Shall we go on to our topics for today? I think we research? should. I think we should. We've sort of travelled the world by land and sea. And yes. Air. And we're going to start with me, I think, today. And you'll be, I'm sure, very relieved to hear that I have 
extensively researched this in, in different ways. Some of them involved books and some not because I'm talking about cocktails today and uh, the history of them. I think we should have done this together. We should have done this as a group activity, shouldn't we, really? But no I'm sure might. we will before long. Yes, we'll have to do that. So cocktails, where do they come from? I'm always quite intrigued by that and intrigued by obviously the different types. And I had thought, let's try and go into all the different types and some of the most interesting ones. But it's one of those where all the origin stories, vast majority of them are really obscure and nobody quite knows. But um, I've always wondered about the term cocktails, where on earth that comes from. And that's, again, another one of those that we sort of know where it first comes in, but nobody quite knows why. So first, I suppose the definition of a cocktail is that it's a high proof spirit mixed technically with water, sugar and some kind of herbs or spices or bitters, as we'll talk about later on. Obviously, the way we talk about it now, it doesn't have to have all of those parts to it, but that's how it starts. And the term cocktail first is attested in 1798. And it's probably coming from the word used for a horse with a docked tail. So that's a mixed breed horse as opposed to a pure blood horse. The idea, I think, is that this mixing of spirits is the same as the mixing of horses. And so that's part of it. A second possible origin, interestingly, brought me back to one of my earlier topics, which is that of eels. Mm. And if you remember this one, I'll be uh, delighted. And again, it's got the sort of this idea of a cocktail as somebody who's enlivened and, and perky. Do you remember the term feeging or faging that we talked about with eels? I think I know what we're talking about. Is this the horse trick? Yes. To liven up a horse. Oh. Yes. Yes, I remember the, yes. Oh, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> Yes, so the way you put the eel up the horse's backside. But that started with eels and then went on to ginger. So gingering a horse being that you add ginger to the anus of the horse to make the tail perk up and the horse look happy. So this idea is that a cocktail is the same. So you can have a drink like this, very often having things like ginger, things like spices in them, and it would perk you up. And there we go, the cocktail. If that's true, I don't know. But it starts coming in in the beginning 1800s. Various publications talk about this mixed drink, often with bitters in them. But to understand why the cocktail develops as a drink, you have to go right back to the history of it. And alcohol obviously goes back 10,000 years at least. But it's the, that's wine and beer, sort of low alcohol spirits. And the cocktail really comes in when high proof alcohols come in. But this distilling pure alcohol and high proof alcohol is much, much harder. So even though people have been making beer and wine, uh, fermenting things for, for thousands and thousands of years, this is much more difficult. How you do it is you're, you're distilling the alcohol, usually from a low alcohol liquid. You use heat and then the pure alcohol vapours escape. And because these Various processes happen at lower temperatures than boiling point of water, 78 degrees Celsius. You can distill that alcohol from the vapours of the other drink. Now, we know that people have been doing it for a long time. The Greeks knew about it, the Romans knew about it, but they weren't very efficient. So they could only really do it in really small quantities. And it was mainly then for medicinal purposes for perfumes and so on. And loads of people claim over time to have perfected distillation, but it seems that the person who did this was an Arab uh, around the year 800. He really improved the process. It's a man called Jabir ibn Hayyan, and he was actually, interestingly, an alchemist. So he was really interested in, in trying to create gold as opposed to alcohol. But well, in many ways, he did. <laughs> he did, yes, exactly. <laughs> but then from that point on, people started being able to do this much, much more efficiently and eventually you have all these different liquids coming in and a lot of them are named things like aqua vitae so essentially the sort of spirit of life or the water of life and 
they're technically considered therapeutic. So this whole idea of medicinal purposes comes in quite a lot. You get fortified wines as well. And the Dutch name Brandewin or burnt wine, which survives as brandy or, or brandy wine. And then eventually people work out that they can make these high proof alcohols from different things like potatoes, grains and starches. And that's that's really the key. But when they become mass produced, a lot of them are at quite low quality and they taste pretty horrible. So things like juniper berries are added and that's where we get gin from and it's to mask the taste of the really quite nasty alcohols. And in England, gin becomes hugely popular so that you have a gin epidemic in 1720 to 1751 because it's very, very cheap and it brings a high proof alcohol to the masses and everyone gets very, very drunk, basically. In other parts of the world, you've got rum, especially in the Americas, and that comes in with the uh, sugar industry. So you have molasses, which are a byproduct of the sugar production people realised that they could make very cheap alcohol from it. And then after the American Revolution, there's a surplus of sugar cane in the Caribbean, there's a surplus of corn in the US, and that essentially paves the way for mass production of high-proof alcohol. And that is the point that the cocktail is born, essentially, because there's so much of it. It's flooding the market, but it tastes pretty horrible. And you can't just, I mean, you can drink it neat, but people mm -hmm. don't want to. And um, So that really, really is the starting point, I think, for cocktails. But there's another Anchester, which is quite interesting, which is the punch. And that's especially popular in Britain. It relates to colonialism, 18th century British. The word punch is thought to come from Hindustani word meaning five, because a punch would traditionally have five different origins, including palm sugar spirit called arak, sugar, lemons, water and spice. So same as that modern cocktail having some of those elements. That was brought back and very much taken up by the English gentry and the punch bowl became really popular as well, these imported China punch bowls. Punch is one of those things you sort of read about, but I've, I don't think I've ever drunk it. So what's in it? Traditionally, it's got five different parts. So one of them is a spirit and... Any arak. spirit? It's meant to be arak, which is this palm sugar spirit that okay. was especially made in India because that's where it's it's starting, really. You have to have sugar. You have to have traditionally lemons, but that later becomes lots of other different fruits. Water or tea, either of those, and then spices. Sounds horrid, doesn't it? <laughs> Richard, have you ever drunk punch? Well, yes, I have. But I have a question about this, Charles. You often see in collections of antique silver, big silver basins, which are always called punch bowls. But I seem to recall yes. that actually they were wine coolers. And this notion of everybody having a punch bowl is false, that actually those big basins were used for cooling bottles of wine rather than a cheering punch for the company. Yes, I think that's true. We've got... Uh, a large one of those sort of silver bowls at home. And it was used early in the evening. You'd have it with blocks of ice in it, cooling your wine. And then once the water had melted, it would be used for the washing up. I mean, it's extraordinary. We, we look at these things as treasures now, but those bits of kit were to be used fully throughout the evening. I can tell you where I have had punch at livery companies where a loving cup is sometimes drunk. There's an elaborate ritual where you pass it from person to person. And when the person next to you is drinking, you have to guard their rear unless they're, unless they're attacked by, I don't know, pike bearer or something. But punch is drunk then. But it's not, it's a ceremony rather than a pleasure, I would say. Sounds even worse than double dipping, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> 
anyway, <laughs> on that note. So yeah, the punch bowl is really interesting because apparently there were it was China, so it was important China and these exotic patterns. So it, it ties in with this time when actually that in itself is really popular. So this is sort of starting point really this is a precursor to the cocktail as such but by the 19th century definitely there's a huge sort of interest in these drinks and just in ways of masking the taste of all that cheap alcohol that people like and then we start getting bars barmen and in the early 19th century the cocktail is very much a sort of man's drink it's very masculine it's not something you have at home you have it in bars so bartenders actually come in in 1836 for the first time and it's interesting because there's lots of other social issues that come in so things like railways um, coming in taverns and inns are not so popular people are traveling a lot more and eventually you get hotels you have middle classes also starting to drink them but the proper cocktails are more high-end thing still at this point in time and then eventually their cocktails spread around the world especially from america so they're, they're sort of thought of as a bit of an american thing really But interestingly, if you remember some of those early ideas of it being uh, medicinal and especially using the herbs and spices, the British Navy was also a big part of spreading cocktails. And some of the ones that we know very well, like gin and tonic, relate to the British Navy. So as they were travelling around, they had these gins and things with them. Some of them are really horrible. Cheap gin wasn't always flavoured with juniper. Some of it was actually flavoured with a type of turpentine, which is uh, really not nice, but it's got the same sort of compound that is related to juniper berries. So they were looking for anything that they could mix in with them. So they looked in their medicine boxes or, or cases for what they could find. And one of them was bitters. And bitters are essentially a concoction of different herbs. And Angostura bitters, the most commonly used in these cocktails, was invented by a German doctor called Dr. Johann Siegert, who actually was sent to Angostura. He was he joined the Venezuelans to fight Spain in 1824 as a surgeon general. And he invented this mix to essentially fight fevers and stomach disorders, which was a bit of alcohol and lots of herbs and things. So these Navy officers just essentially looked in their boxes and found the bitters, mixed them in with the gin and thought, great, that tastes really nice. Well, that remains a very popular drink. My stepfather was in midget submarines in World War II and used to have endless comrades come and stay. And they, a pink gin was part of their morning. Yes. And it basically is gin. And I think they all pretended that Angostura was somehow non-alcoholic. But as you mentioned, it does have alcohol in it. And in fact, the first time I decided to give alcohol up for a month, I thought, well, I'll just do tonics with Angostura, which made the month go very well. <laughs> uh, I just have more and more Angostura in it. It got pinker and pinker, but it was alcohol. Yeah. My grandfather used to drink a pink gin. It was his thing. I suspect as well, I think it was just a way of slightly masking your thirst for a hard spirit, wasn't it? So you gave it a little drop of something decorous and it didn't look like you were having an alcohol problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So the other one they kind of invented as well was the gin and tonic because the tonic water had quinine in it, which of course they used to fight malaria. And then the lime was also kept on board to combat scurvy. So that's the reason why you'd have lime as well. So same the sort of idea of medicinal tonics being added to them. And in the 19th century, that was very popular. But medicinal tonics were all over the place and advertised. And they were meant to help you for all sorts of things. They did have quite a lot of alcohol in them. So even if they didn't really work, they probably made you feel better for a while for other other reasons. 
that's really the starting point. And then as it, we continue into the 20th century, we also got, obviously, in America, things like the temperance movements, so inventing non-alcoholic cocktails, and then with prohibition, that obviously affects it as well. And it's really after that that we get more towards cocktails as we think of them nowadays. And you start getting cocktail lounges and it moves into popular culture as well. And you start getting all these mad inventions of different types of drinks. Some of these really tropical ones are linked to this interest in Polynesia and the South Seas. So you have tiki bars come up where you have all the pineapples, the cocktails and the umbrellas with them. And then it's only really after the Second World War that the cocktail moves into the home and you start having cocktail parties at home. Personally, I don't really drink spirits, but I, you know, occasionally I'll have a Negroni, which is suddenly very fashionable. But my goodness, you've got to make it right. Otherwise, it can taste like paraffin. I have three cocktails. I have a summer cocktail, which is a classic daiquiri, which I think is the nicest thing to drink mm. in summer. My winter cocktail is a whiskey mac. And then my favourite weird cocktail is a crema et, which is typical of Valencia. What about you, Kat? What do you drink? I do I do like things like gin and tonic, quite simple ones. I quite like sort of fruity fun ones as well. Yeah, I don't like sweet ones. I mean, that's the thing. I haven't really got a sweet tooth. I'm afraid, being a classic Hooray Henry, I can make a very good Bloody Mary, but you need horseradish in it oh, too. Yeah. And a lot of lemon juice, a lot of fresh lemon juice, because otherwise the tomato juice becomes incredibly thick and it's it's like eating something and that's no good. And also don't put ice in a Bloody Mary because it will melt and, and just make it very unpleasant yeah. and watery in one part and then thick goo in the other. I knew a very charming barman in the bar called El Rincon Latino in Clapham. And I used to go to St. Peter's Clapham, a church there. And when the bell rang, the sacring bell at the Eucharist, this barman would pour a Bloody Mary because he knew we'd be out of church in five minutes. And he made it absolutely beautiful, but also with a dash of sherry. I don't know if that's your method, Charles, but it was the sort of Spanish method. And the dash of sherry in a Bloody Mary was delicious. It is. It's really good, but it must just be a dash. Otherwise, everyone's just going to fall over. It's interesting what you were saying earlier about the ice and having it cold, because that was actually quite an early important part of the development of the cocktails was going back to refrigeration and moving oh, yes. ice around. So when that was brought into America and bartenders started using ice in these drinks and ice in cocktails, that helped it develop as a bigger thing. But do you want to hear my favourite fact? Mm. Yes. Yeah. So there were a few. Actually, I'm going to have two. I'm going to be sneaking and have two favourite facts. One of them was one of the cocktails I came across was called the Brompton, which is apparently named after London's Brompton Hospital, which was a cocktail containing gin, honey and morphine. And it was given to the terminal, terminally <laughs> ill. Yes, it sort of helped them on their way, didn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, yes. <laughs> so that was one of my favourites. The other was about mixology, which is one of those words I absolutely hate. And it sounds like something invented by sort of a bunch of hipster advertisers <laughs> going on about craft gin or something. But it actually goes back to the 1800s. In 1856, Knickerbocker magazine first use this term, talking about essentially what was a bartender really or, or a sort of cocktail mixer as a mixologist of tipulas. Taking the mickey really a little bit out of this idea of these sort of grand mixing of uh, of cocktails. But that's, so that term isn't a modern one but that was used from, yeah, the sort of early part of the 19th century for mixing cocktails. Brilliant. So there we go. That's fine. I think I'm going to have to do some more research though. I think I'm going to have to go. <laughs> we should have a cocktail party. Yes, yours, yes. Something. Just the three of us. Yes. Let's do that. Have, have some punch. And the disembodied voice. We make the disembodied voice a disembodied soul as they <laughs> yes. try all of these things. I'm in. 
count me in. <laughs> I'm trying to think what my favourite cocktail is as well, actually. Another thing that's become very trendy recently, which I do like, is an Aperol Spritz. Yeah. Yes. Which is a sort of Campari and soda that's got attitude, isn't it? A, a little bit less bitter, I would mm. say. Mm-hmm. So for people who don't like Campari and Spritz, it's a nice alternative. Not that I have any stake in the game of pushing Aperol. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So... Going from cocktails, and we're going to go on to you, Charles. And you have a topic that you're quite familiar with, really, because of something you've been writing, and uh, that's shipwrecks. Well, indeed. And in fact, the shipwreck that I'm going to major on today was the result of too much drinking. So we'll get to that. (laughs) I have to, obviously, with this topic, address some of the sort of most famous shipwrecks of all time. I'll start with the Titanic in 1912, when more than 1,500 people perished. It's one that comes straight to mind ever since the movie of 25 years ago resurrected the whole drama and tragedy of that tale. But to be fair, and and with due respect, everyone connected to that terrible night of drowning, it's not really one that should be the first we recall. There have been far worse shipwrecks in terms of numbers dying. In 1945, a Russian submarine sank the German ship, the Wilhelm Gusthof, And 9,400 people died. It was meant to carry 1,900, but a lot of defeated German soldiers and civilians fleeing the Allied advances had packed on board it. And it went down with that extraordinary loss of life. Extraordinary that so many people can die. And then in peacetime, the Dona Paz collided with an oil tanker near the Philippines in in 1987, and 4,000 people died, and only 26 were rescued. So these are really grim ones. And then we did touch on this in an earlier episode, the Lusitania, an American ship that was torpedoed by the Germans in 1915, when 1,200 people died, is a very significant one, because it helped a couple of years later to bring America into the First World War. I came across some researching this, which I'd never heard of before. The SS Sultana went down in 1865 at the end of the American Civil War. It was carrying prisoners of war. It had 2,300 people on board, a ship that should have had a maximum of 350. And it put an enormous strain, this extra weight, on the boiler, and it blew up, and then the decks collapsed. And it was a terrible, terrible time for all aboard. And then there was a Japanese sea mine that blew up a Chinese ship in 1948, 80 kilometers from Shanghai, and 4,000 people died on that, and 1,000 were rescued. But, you know, shipwrecks are an extraordinarily common thing. UNESCO have estimated that there are 3 million shipwrecks undiscovered around the world. And there are about 200,000 that we know about. So it's part of man's uh, urge to travel or trade. And we come to the very first one that I could find. And you have to forgive me if you're Greek, but I think it's the Dokos shipwreck from about 2,500 BC, 100 kilometers east of Sparta. And the ship's long gone, but what's left is cargo, including 500 clay vases. It was discovered in 1975, along with anchors made of stone, these great boulders that they threw overboard, and then some millstones, which we assume were used for ballast. The clay vases I mentioned predate pottery wheels, so we're talking about an extraordinarily long time ago. More recent, I think one of the most famous ones, is the Endurance. The ship went down eventually after having been caught in pack ice. And the ship was part of Ernest Shackleton's expedition. He's one of these great explorers from the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. 
We now know why his men were able to cover so much snow in such little time. They used to use forced march capsules, they called them, which are a blend of caffeine and cocaine. Um, but it certainly made them cover the ground quickly. And yeah, Shackleton's an extraordinary. This is a little rabbit hole. He is one of 10 children and one of two brothers. And Shackleton becomes one of the great heroes of the early 20th century empire of Great Britain. But his brother, Francis Shackleton, is one of the prime suspects in the stealing of the Irish crown jewels, which I'd like to look at in another episode. They were last seen in March 1907 and went missing. You know, you've got one great hero from a family and one who looks remarkably suspiciously like a very bad man. He was eventually imprisoned for getting a dud cheque out of a widow, a widow's bank account. Anyway, the bare facts of Shackleton's endurance. The ship got stuck in pack ice, as I mentioned. Eventually it went under. The men had to drill through the top and go down several feet of iced water to retrieve three and a half tonnes of supplies. And this kept them going. But they were hoping that the ice drift would take them towards inhabited islands. This didn't happen. So Shackleton and five of his men set off in a small boat, the James Caird, which is really just a lifeboat, and managed to get to safety and left the men for 128 days. But when they finally got the search party back to retrieve the men, not one of them was uh, missing. But I would like to say that the most important shipwreck in European history was the White Ship and an extraordinary vessel. We don't, obviously, there's no pictures of it because it was in 1120 that it went down. But um, I'm going to take you to Henry I, one of my favourite kings. And come 1120, he had done all sorts of extraordinary things. He had delivered an heir, a young boy at this time, well, he was a young man of 17 called William Aithling. Aithling's rather like being Prince of Wales. It's the next in line. He had defeated the French under the marvellously named Louis the Fat. He had quelled the Welsh and made friends with the Scots. So everything looked good. He was going to hand over his crown of England and his dukedom of Normandy to his heir, William Aithling. And when he got Henry I got to the Normandy port of Barfleur in November 1120, a man came forward and said, look, I have the greatest ship in Europe. It's the white ship. And he pointed to it. He said, my father had the honour of taking your father across to England when he defeated the English in 1066 at the Battle of Hastings. And I demand the right to take you back in your moment of triumph over the French now. And Henry I, not a fun figure, said, no, I don't really want to go, but you can have my children. He had various illegitimate children, including his son and heir, William. You can have my great men of battle, my bishops, my men of bureaucracy and their wives. 18 women of the rank of countess and above got on board the white ship. And then here we are, Cat. Cocktails intervened. <laughs> um, we have uh, eyewitness accounts of the crew getting rip-roaringly drunk. And then when they set off at midnight on the 25th of November, 1120, the captain was drunk, the oarsmen were drunk, and they decided to try and go across the channel as fast as possible. And they hit a, a rock, the Key Berf Rock, which is still there, of course, off Barfleur, and they went down. And we have these terrible scenes. Luckily, we have one man who survived, an eyewitness to this tragedy, a man called Barreau the Butcher. And he was uh, probably saved because he was wearing leather and fur from the offcuts of his trade as a butcher. And he survived and was hauled off a piece of wreckage the next day. And he told the tale of the young prince getting away in the only little boat on the white ship, being rowed away to safety. And then he heard his half-sister, Matilda of Perche, 
calling for him and he told his men to turn around and they tried to get through the drowning 300 people and they tried to clamber. Those that could reach the lifeboat clambered aboard and took it down with the prince. And this changed the course of history, not just for England, but for Europe. Because although the Norman dynasty staggered on for a generation, there was no heir for the crown to go to. In fact, the man who seized the crown in 1135 was a man called Stephen, King Stephen, who actually got off the white ship because he had an upset stomach. He got off just before it set sail. And so we have the end of the Norman dynasty brought about by this shipwreck. And William of Marnsbury, one of the great 12th century English historians, wrote, no ship that ever sailed brought so much misery to England. So he wrote that 900 years ago, and it's still true today, because it resulted in a change of regime from Norman to Plantagenet. So the Plantagenets took over in 1154 and stayed on the throne till the Tudors took over in 1485. It's interesting, Charles, isn't it? Because there are different kinds of shipwrecks, category of shipwrecks, I suppose. There's those ones you write about in war where those appalling losses of life. There's the Titanic, which assumes a symbolic significance, which is out of proportion to its actual significance, I guess. And then there's the white ship, which has such huge dynastic consequences that it literally changes the, the history of Europe. They mean different things, shipwrecks, don't they, depending on their significance of one kind or another. I think that's absolutely right. You know, you're dealing with everyday tragedy in the UNESCO figure of three million shipwrecks. And think of all those people where the ship just didn't turn up the other end. People don't know what happened to it. They just know it disappeared. In fact, I wrote a biography of my Prince Rupert and his brother, Prince Morris, just disappeared in a huge ship. No one knows what happened to it. But you're right, it's dynastic. It's always tragic, I would say. And, and, and the disappearance of whole fleets. You know, in the 13th century, a couple of fleets went missing. And you wonder what happened to them. The sea being such a vast and terrifying place. If you look at the maps of the oceans in the early 12th century... People didn't know what was there. I mean, it's a very obvious point, but it's worth remembering. People didn't know what was under the sea. They couldn't see what was under the sea. So it was assumed that there were all sorts of monsters surviving there that were going to eat you up. I ran into a ship insurer at a function a little while ago. I sat next to her at dinner, and she told me that a large ship is lost at the rate of about 50 a year. About one a week goes down somewhere in the world. Because the ocean is vast and dangerous and there's an awful lot of shipping and not all of the people who are on board are considered significant enough for their deaths to be noted or recorded. Isn't that extraordinary? I had no idea that was a statistic. It's absolutely chilling, really. I am really interested in all these ones that are now being discovered, especially some of these earlier archaeological ones, obviously, because there are new ones being found and we've got more technology, we've got ways of finding them now um, that it's still pretty much needle in the haystack a lot of the time. But actually, some of them that preserve so many, as you were talking about those early Greek wrecks, for example, actually completely change what we know about trade and transport because they preserve so much. It's like a little snapshot, a little insight into what people were actually doing and where they were going and what they were going with. And some of them, those cargoes are just extraordinary. Well, you're absolutely right. There's one, and again, I apologise to any Greek-speaking people, but I think it's called Antikythera, which went down in about 60 BC and was discovered by sponge divers by chance in 1900, but it's only really recently been looked at in depth. And they found on board not just 
obvious things that were going to be traded, but also what looked like a jumble of nothing. But they worked out that actually it was a mechanism for tracking the sun, the moon, the planets, and the star calendar with these pieces. If you put them together, you could predict eclipses. And also it even had a timetable for athletics events such as the Olympics, all built into what looks like a jumble of st- uh, sticks, really. <laughs> I love yes. that. In Kat, for archaeologists, is there an issue in what gets preserved and what gets lost in a shipwreck? Presumably, the only evidence you get is that which is imperishable. Lots of stuff perishes. Does that kind of give you an incomplete picture? Yeah, completely. And organic materials obviously are very susceptible to that. But you also do get some quite exceptional preservation conditions. So sometimes you get these salts around metals, for example. So you get metallic salts that form in seawater around some of the metals and you can remove them and the object is actually quite well preserved inside. And sometimes that will actually help preserve other things as well. So the people who perished don't get preserved because things will fragment and then they will float apart. So it does tend to be the those inorganic things that stay in one place. So it's not really, unfortunately, that helpful. And and quite often, you know, the wood timbers might be preserved, but not always. We've yet to find a a Viking ship, for example, (laughs) unfortunately. I fell into conversation in Aberdeen Airport the other day with a chap who was a deep sea diver from oil rigs. He started off as in the Royal Navy. And one of his jobs was to retrieve bodies after a shipwreck. And he said that you go down there and there's this awful thing called the dance of death because once you start disturbing the bodies, the bodies which have by now become gassy start floating around. And he said it was like being at a weird rave in the 1990s because these bloated figures would wave their arms around in the current and you'd have to get hold of them and get a rope around them and hold them to the surface and their face would be squished up against your mask. He said it was most unnerving. Yeah, I'm going to have nightmares about that. Thank yeah, you, thank Richard. Yeah, thank you. That's a really nice yeah. image, isn't it? <laughs> but going back <laughs> to... Going back to preservation, uh, it's very interesting. So exactly 100 years after Shackleton eventually died, in 2022, they found the endurance. It's 3,000 metres down and it's in brilliant condition, but you're not allowed to remove anything from it. There was an exception made for these archaeological sites to do with the Arctic explorers, Antarctic explorers, where you can remove alcohol. They often took lots of whiskey with them, and some of that has been recovered, in fact, from Shackleton's base in 1907. But otherwise, these are historic sites that you are not allowed to take anything from, which I think is rather wonderful, actually. Do you want to know my favourite fact? I'd love it. <clears throat> well, I like a long tail to a um, an event of history. So I'm going to return to the white ship. We have to remember this is 900 years ago. So the court was plunged into mourning because pretty much everyone had lost a relative in the royal court on board the shipwreck because it was all the most important people in the country who had gone down, the Anglo-Norman aristocracy, etc., And so the one man who found himself out of a job, really, was Rahir, who was the court jester. And he decided to go overseas and take up something he'd long wanted to do, which was a pilgrimage to Rome. And Rome at this time was infested with malaria. And he had a vision when he was very ill with malaria. And he was visited by one of the disciples who told him that he would save his life as long as he built a memorial to him. And he came back to England and built St. Bartholomew's Hospital. Brilliant. Love that. And I think you have been very modest here, Charles. You haven't actually mentioned that. There is a very good book called The White Ship <laughs> that you happen to have written if Gosh, people want to know yes. more about it. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And that leaves us with you, Richard, now. And so I've got the name of your topic, but it's another one that I know nothing about. You've got Edith Rigby to tell us about this week. Bicycle with me 
if you will, <laughs> to the northern mill town of Preston in the 1890s, because there you would see an extraordinary scene. There you would see a woman, a young woman that time called Edith Rayner, who would be riding her bicycle in a pair of bloomers around the city of Preston, being pelted with eggs and onions and cabbages and potatoes by the outraged population of that town. The reason being that women on bicycles was an extraordinary thought, a challenge to a patriarchal status quo. And Edith Rayner was the first person, first woman in Preston, to get a bicycle. Hard to overstate the significance of the bicycle and the emancipation of women, actually. One of the shocking things about it was that in order to ride it properly, you needed to have sort of trousers. So bloomers, which were considered rather startling as an undergarment, were often worn. Enterprising Edith Rayner actually cycled from Preston to Leicester, to visit her sister, an extraordinary achievement. She was born in 1872. Her father was a surgeon. And I think because of that and his very dedicated work with the poor communities who were building up around the cotton mills of Preston after industrialization, she became unusually aware for a woman of the genteel classes of the conditions of the workers. And she was so distressed by that that at the age of seven, this is rather a nauseating image, I have to say, but it tells you something about her. At the age of 11, rather, she used to get Christmas presents and present them solemnly to workers as they came out of the mills in December on their way home. Nice gesture, perhaps. As I said, in teenagehood, encouraged by her father, who was very much into a kind of radical uh, new understanding of the nature of the world and the distribution of power and the inequities that follow as a consequence in you know, industrial cities in the north of England were a good place to do that. He encouraged her in education. She went off to a girls' boarding school. Didn't go to university unusually, although she was of the generation of the first women who did. Instead, at the age of 21, she married another doctor called Charles Rigby, and they moved to Winkley Square, where they kept a rather unusual household. Both of them were rather keen radicals, and they employed servants like everybody else did, but they decided to treat their servants more as social equals. So the servants didn't have to wear uniforms, and they ate with them at the dining table, which was perfectly nice, perhaps, for the servants, and for them, I don't know, but it outraged the neighbours who thought that they were dangerously undermining the proper relationship between those who serve and those who are served upon. So that was all a bit tricky. She started a school for local working-class girls. Education ceased at 11. So it was a night school where you played tuppence and you could go in there and you could learn all sorts of things and she'd take them on trips and things. And then in 1905, she joined the Independent Labour Party. This is when the union movement was beginning to get going and the labour movement was beginning to get going and she was one of the first to take a role in that from the sort of middle and professional classes. And then in 1904... She got involved after the foundation of the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union. The suffragettes, huge movement began for the enfranchisement of women, who at that point did not have the vote. This, of course, was a gross injustice and intolerable. And for a generation of women who'd perhaps had their political activism ignited by changes in labour relations and so on, it became the defining issue. She became friends with the Pankhursts, and became one of the most significant activists in that extraordinarily 
powerful, pungent and problematic political movement. It seems extraordinary to us now, in an age of universal suffrage or thereabouts, that there could be any resistance at all among thinking people to women having the vote. But it was an extraordinarily difficult issue in the day. And so the suffragettes got together and decided to protest this. And they did this with considerable flair, elan and courage. And it meant that lots of middle-class girls from professional backgrounds like Edith Rigby got involved in a form of activism which led them into direct conflict with the authorities. I mean, the call for women's suffrage was made in a very moderate and thoughtful way, but it was resisted by politicians who thought that this was not an issue of first-order importance. And so the suffragettes kind of upped the ante by a huge march on Parliament happened. Edith was one of the people who marched on Parliament, I think it was in 1907. And she was notorious for going around Preston and encouraging people who were working in the mills, women working in the mills, to join the suffragette movement. One of them called Beth Hesmondhalge, a very interesting person, wrote later that she sort of came round and lectured her on the importance of getting involved in women's suffrage movement and then persuaded her husband to let her do it. And then she did. And then the next thing she knew, she said she was sent to prison, which she hadn't seen coming. Charles. It sounds so English, this, the story you're telling. And of course, the characters are English, Richard. But I just wondered, in a wider perspective, did women, and there's no reason why you'd know this from researching this, but did women have the vote in other European countries much sooner than this? Or what was it about England that was so far behind the times? I think it was pretty representative. As I recall, it was in, I think New Zealand got there early. Some countries got there very late. There were some cantons in Switzerland, I think, which didn't give the vote to women until the 1970s. But I'm not sure about that. I'll ask the disembodied voice to do a little bit of research. What's striking about it to us now, I think, is just how strongly the status quo resisted this, just how strongly people reacted to this notion of women taking control of their lives. And there was a fear on the part of politicians and those in government that if women were given the franchise, they would outnumber men, and therefore their voting power would be such that it would make Britain weak or feminised or unable to uphold its imperial obligations around the world. And they were pretty violent. After this march on Parliament... It was almost a storming of Parliament and the police were taken by surprise, so they arrested lots of people. It was, of course, then an offence to demonstrate uh, in front of Parliament. And they were sent to Holloway. So we had people like Edith and uh, other women of gentility and her background who found themselves in Holloway. Edith was arrested in all, I think, and imprisoned nine times in the course of her career, which is extraordinary. She was one of the winners of the Hunger Strike Medal. And it gives you a sense of the dedication of women to this mission, was they would go on hunger strike and refuse to eat rather than acquiesce to the law, which they felt to be iniquitous and unjust. And so there was this thing in 1913 called the Cat and Mouse Act that was brought in. And then women who were on hunger strike, as soon as they got within danger of death, they were released and allowed to go home. And then when they were fed up again, well, they were rearrested and put back into prison. So effectively, you had a kind of a rolling legitimisation of arrest and imprisonment. Cat. You said she was married, didn't you? And at what point did she get married? And what did her husband think of all of this? That really intrigues me. Are they sort of people who've got supportive husbands or or not often? 
Her husband, Charles Rigby, was actually emphatically in support of her. And when she was first arrested and imprisoned, caused a huge hoo-ha, of course, in Preston. Then he wrote a letter to the newspaper very much in favour of her and saying that she was a great hero and should be applauded for her actions. The difficult thing with the suffragettes, perhaps, for us to fully understand is that as that activism became sharper and sharper and more energised, their tactics became more and more well, terrorists, they described themselves as terrorists. Well, and there was a campaign of bombing and arson. You may remember when we were talking about Westminster Abbey a few weeks ago, the stone of destiny was damaged by a bomb planted in Westminster Abbey by suffragettes. Now, some historians seek to sort of exculpate them from the charge of terrorism by saying that this was always done with no intention to harm life. In fact, there were at least four people died as a result of the arson attacks of suffragettes and a number of postal workers were severely burned because there were letter bombs that were sent through the post. And Edith played quite a significant role in this. She planted a bomb in the Liverpool Cotton Exchange, which exploded at night when nobody was in and caused significant damage. She forgot to leave her suffragette banners there, so she planted them in a post box on the way home, just to make the point. But perhaps her most famous activist deed was the burning down of Rivington Pike. Rivington Pike, near Chorley, in Lancashire, was a sort of holiday bungalow built by Sir William Lever, the soap baronet, later Lord Leverhume, of course, great industrialist. Unilever has its origins with his enterprise. And he had built this sort of bungalow as a sort of summer retreat and filled it with some of the art treasures that he collected with enormous enthusiasm and incredible wealth. And Edith Rigby got her chauffeur to drive her to Rivington Pike one evening when she knew that Sir William was dining with the King at nearby Knowsley Park. And then um, the chauffeur was dismissed because she didn't want to get him into trouble, but she needed someone to drive, obviously. So she went round the house and emptied cans of paraffin into it and set fire to it and burned it down and caused a huge hoo-ha. She was, of course, arrested. Well, she volunteered herself, actually, at the police station and admitted that she had not only burnt down Rivington Pike, but she'd also planted a pipe bomb at the Liverpool Cotton Exchange. And when asked why, she said... Because Liverpool's wealth and the wealth of the industrial northwest and the wealth of the empire is built on the labour of women who get no political power in return for this labour and that that was an iniquitous situation which needed to be addressed. The intervention of the First World War came in 1914. And then the suffragette movement rather split because some suffragettes felt that they should now put their a single-issue campaign to one side and join the war effort, and others thought they should in fact intensify the suffragette impulse and also broaden it to include a sort of radical socialist programme of change. And Edith was of that party. She moved out of Preston and she bought a cottage called Marigold Cottage, not very far from Preston, and um, she went to live there. And then after the war, the women were granted the vote in a sort of series of grudging relaxations of the rules, I suppose, eventually achieving suffrage as we'd recognised it. I think it was 1928. Again, I'll ask the disembodied voice to check that. The war, of course, changed everything because women played such a significant part in the war effort. The idea that that shouldn't be fully acknowledged in some way was unthinkable. And so there she was at Marigold Cottage. She's very fond of North Wales, so they bought these two semis in Llan Ross, but her husband unfortunately died of pneumonia, aged only 68. And um, 
She lived there wearing slippers and these kind of caftans that she made out of sacking and some ethnic jewellery. And she used to sit cross-legged on the floor smoking Turkish cigarettes, entertaining people. She got Parkinson's and that rather slowed her down. And then she had a fall and broke a leg in 1950 and she died. And that was the end of Edith Rigby, but what an interesting person. So I think we've got some research coming up from our disembodied voice. Yes, so Richard asked about the first nation to grant women the vote, and that was New Zealand. That was in 1893. Does anyone know the first European country that granted women the vote, I guess? Oh, no. France. Finland. Finland in 1906 and then lots of other nations in Europe followed in the 1910s. We granted voting rights to some women, women over the age of 30 by uh, 1918. But then full voting rights weren't until 1928 and the final nation to give women the vote, yes, it was Switzerland in unbelievably 1971. And one more tiny comment from me, I believe Edith was arrested seven times. And Richard, your favourite fact? Well, my favourite fact is, and I think why Edith Rigby will be long remembered, is that her name is given to the new £200 million link road connecting uh, Preston and File to the M55. It's called Edith Rigby Way, which means it is the only road named after a woman who threw a black pudding at Winston Churchill. <laughs> Yes. I think that's a good yeah, claim no to fame, isn't it? No yeah. one's going to dispute that. That's a unique position, yes. Brilliant. But okay, let's see then. Let's have the decision from our disembodied voice who's going to declare this week's winner. Well, if everybody would like to raise their glasses and congratulate Kat. Yes. Well done, Kat. Thank you. Well done, Kat. Yeah, brilliant. Excellent. But before we go, we have to decide on next week's research, next week's topics. So I'm going to be talking about Tu Heyerdahl. And Charles, you will be researching the Italian mafia. Brilliant. And then finally, Richard, cursed families. Yeah. I feel like there's a bit of a link here between these three, but let's see. <laughs> let's see next week. It's always satisfying when there is. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you all for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. And if you've got a topic that you would like us to research, we absolutely love having those suggestions coming from you. Do send us an email on rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. Don't forget, you can find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column discussing our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, you might do better with the time than waste it in asking riddles that have no answers. Very wise words. Very wise. Bye all. Goodbye. Bye.